Welcome to Brand Appeal, where we talk about brand storytelling in the digital age. I'm your host, Shannon Peel, and today I talked with Rocco Carrero, author of Three Chords Approach to Life for Business Owners. We talked about the financial markets, planning for times of crisis, and the joys of giving. Our conversation touches on everything from investing to parenting. Keep listening for insights into living, saving, and the joy of giving. Rocco, thank you very much for coming and joining me here on Brand Appeal. And I've got one question for you. What is it that you want to be known for? You know, really being an authority in the the marketplace for wealth management for business owners, CEOs, and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So where are you located? South Central Long Island, if you picture the islands, right? Uh, Long Island here in New York. So you are either in Long Island or the Hamptons. Yeah, exactly. Well, Long Island is so the Hamptons is Eastern Long Island. Uh-huh. I'm in uh, South Central Long Island, so more in the central part of it now. Okay, yeah, I'm in Vancouver, Canada, so I'm not familiar with the with the map, but uh, I have heard of Long Island and I've have heard of the Hamptons. So. We used to watch a uh, a family show. It was uh, like a horse ranch. I think it took place in a horse ranch area near Vancouver. I believe I forgot the name of the show, but we loved it. It was a Canadian show. Oh, got, that was right. in Calgary. Calgary, okay, Calgary, okay. Sorry. Um, yeah, I know it, what show you're talking about. Oh, I cannot remember the name of it for the life of me. Yeah, that, but that was in Calgary. I lived in Calgary for 12 years. I had my children when I was in Calgary, and when they were young, we we were there. Great city. Love Calgary. Very well, different attitude than Vancouver. Calgary is like the Canadian version of Texas. And right now I'm in Vancouver, which is in British Columbia, which is the Canadian version of Washington and California. Cool. All right. Like all the oils in Alberta and BC won't let the pipeline go across it in order to get it to market. I love uh, love Canada. Really haven't. I've been to Montreal, Toronto. Montreal is my, probably my favorite Canadian city because of, it has culture. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Don't have as much history out here and don't have as much culture, I would say, because I probably because I grew up in it to other people. There's probably a lot of culture here. I'm in Whistler right now at my brother's place. So it's like hanging out in Aspen. (laughs) Here are people going to ski there. You know, we're skiers and uh, we've got to go there, too. So a lot I got to do. But, um, yeah, no, you definitely have to hit Whistler, Blackcomb. Uh, it is beautiful here. It is, uh, I can see the mountains from my brother's place. It's just gorgeous. Oh, very cool. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. So if you are a skier, you would love, definitely love, love it here. So when you, let's go back to what you do and uh, your brand story. So what inspired you to become, to work in the financial industry? You know, I've um, I've always had an interest in helping people, and I've always had an interest in business. And I thought, okay, well, what what can I do where I can help people one on one, and do it in business and still be involved in the global economic system? And it was 
it was being a uh, a person, a, being a wealth advisor for uh, for individuals that allowed to help people. Really, so you know, I have the the uh, the heart of a of a social worker, but the mind of a capitalist, and so that allowed me to combine both. And it's been a great career for me. I've been doing this now for almost twenty five years, and it's it's worked really well for the clients we serve as well as for myself. So it's, it's been fun. I spent eight years in the financial industry, in the financial investment industry here in Canada, uh, in Calgary, actually. <laughs> My first career was in the financial industry. And I left to be with my, my, my kids. The dot-com bubble had just burst. And that mm-hmm. was a very stressful time for a lot of people. Was. What, other, what other times has there been in your experience where the market has been extremely stressful for the majority of people? It's a a great question. Even though I was kind of like interning and starting getting involved in the markets in the early 90s, the first real stressful point was between the tech bubble that burst in March of 2000. So you had that. And then you had the events, the the events of 9-11, which had 2001. So between March of 2000, really through the the end of 2003 was a very difficult time for investors. You know, it showed negative statements the year 2000, 2001, 2002. It wasn't in 2003 that there seemed to be some type of light at the end of the tunnel. And then, uh, so after that, you had 2004, 2005, 2006, and 2000, uh, and you know, 2006 that were really good, that were good years. 2007 started getting rocky, the summer of uh, seven. And then you had a horrible period in uh, 2008, uh, 2009, which were terrible. Then you had a period between 2010, 2016, which were good. I believe 2017 was was a bad year. That was the year that, that started all of the trade talks with China and the markets just sold off at the end of the year. It was it was it was really bad, and then uh, and then things started coming back. And then you had uh, eighteen, nineteen. Then you had the COVID situation. Markets tanked in the uh, second quarter of twenty twenty. Then had a great rally through from the middle of twenty twenty up until um, up until really now and up until the beginning of this year, and which really has been induced by the idea of rising interest rates, inflation, as well as the, the crises that they're experiencing in the Ukraine. Yeah, there's just and, so much going on right now. And that's kind of why I wanted to kind of go over the history of the markets, because they go up, they come down, they go up, they come down. But overall, they go up. That has been the historical, uh, that's been what's happened throughout history. Six months after a major military event like what we're seeing right now, the markets usually have recovered what they lost. This is what history has told us. I've looked at 27 different major traumatic events that the country, the world has seen. And each time it was different. 27 out of 27 times different. And every time it's come back. Let's hope this time things come back as well. And a lot of it has to do with uh, what would you know what's going to happen over in the Ukraine. I mean, of course, there this real threat of a nuclear attack, real threat, and um, and if that was to happen, all you know, all bets are off the table. That is, that's an event that the world really today has not seen anything like that. And so, hope that doesn't get to that. You know, we move, we move, we move forward. Yeah, I mean, the closest we ever came to that was the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. The Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, this was that was before social media or any a lot of major stream media. 
Yeah, I was about to say that the closest we came was then, and the what is that called? The hundred second clock, or there's a clock, a doomsday clock that uh, measures the chance of a initial strike, and this is the closest. Like even if you look at the Cuban Missile Crisis compared to today, we are more we're closer to the to the chance of it actually happening than they were back then. Absolutely. You know, now I think Russia has something like 6,000 nuclear um, nuclear bombs that have the capability of hitting the United States and Canada. So we are, <clears throat> this is really serious. And uh, I know that President Biden, as well as the other NATO leaders are getting together. And um, I hope that uh, that they're all looking at each other and, and coming up with a solution and hope there's some good advisors there providing good advice to uh to keep us all safe and you know to get the the ukrainian people out of this disaster that they're in so it's, mm-hmm. it's terrible yeah it is the markets will react accordingly however even in times like this because i remember what we, one of the th- times that you were talking about was 2007 2008 and in 2006 or 2000, right before the, the thing started to correct, I noticed that air, airlines profits were going down and Walmart's profits were going up, mm-hmm. which signaled, oh, there's a problem. People aren't spending money, don't have money. There's a, there is an actual problem with uh, on the ground with people's spending power, which will result in a correction of some sort. And then we had 2007, 2008. Now there are these leading indicators that well that kind of tell us the health of the economy without really getting the government or the news to tell us what the economy is. Mm-hmm. There's they always are. money to be made, even when things are bad. Is my point. It is, uh, yeah. There, you know, it's a different. You know, people that have the the ability and the stomach to short securities, uh, they profit on on in, in environments like this as well. Um, and, uh, you know, but long, long-term investors, uh, usually do not short securities. They do think long-term and, um, but when know. they, like when they are regular investors and buying at, you know, they buy up and they, buy up, they just continue to invest every month. Yes. yes. They benefit when the markets go up and they benefit when the markets go down. So 100%. Really, it doesn't matter how much their portfolio is until they are ready to sell. Hundred percent correct, right? You know, this is a this is a wonderful time for growth equity buyers. Terrific growth companies are down anywhere from ten to seventy percent. You know, if you're if you're buying systematically weekly, this is a great time to be a buyer. Not a great time to be a seller. Uh, you have to be, but it's a great time to be a buyer. Think that growth will probably will resume. You know, once the interest rate hike is are done, maybe that might be the signal for that growth will resume. But we'll we'll say. Everything's a season. And I hope that, you know, that people can understand that, that it's not uh, time to run on banks or something like that, because it's not the same as it was back in 29, no matter what, because it's a totally different market, totally different economy, totally different lifestyle and time. Well, we've talked about that before, the, the, the idea of what happens if there's a you know, run on the bank. And we're in 29 where people lined up to pull cash out. Um, and then you look at what's been happening over in the Ukraine. They certainly had run, run on the bank. And, you know, runs in the bank usually happen when there's extreme fear where people feel compelled 
to take their cash out because they feel that they're not going to be able to access it. So, you know, I think that we could potentially see something like that again, even in North America. We could we could see that. I hope we don't. But in periods of, of extreme threat and worry is where there are lines outside the bank. You know, there's still people that, you know, would feel more comfortable actually physically holding their currency in their, you know, in their house or something. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just interesting because nowadays we have so many different ways of paying for things that they didn't have back then. And we actually have different currency because we have fiat currency now and not currency tied to the gold reserve. Yeah. There's a lot of different variables between back then and now. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm I'm an optimist by nature. I, you know, I never thought that Vladimir Putin would actually go in and uh, just for the reason being, I said, there's, there's no way he's going to go in because there's no way he's going to be able to get out. And this is this this can't work out for him no matter what happens. And sure enough, he went in. And sure enough, there's no way to get out. Even okay. if he wins, it's it's over for him globally. So mm-hmm. I understand why Europe is is scared. I understand why the markets are nervous. But I also understand why it's so important for people to have someone like you who is focused on what's going on, who has been through, you know, 20 some odd years of ups and downs. You know, you went through 9-11 and that was a huge fear time. Everybody was scared and it was the U.S. that was being attacked. A lot of sleepless nights. You know, I don't think anybody really slept very good the night of September the 11th, wondering what what's actually happening here, what's going on. There's been, you know, and 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 just like what we're seeing today, we don't know what the next six major traumatic events are going to be to the to the world, but they're going to come. But you know, let's hope that we're, you know, the, the world is 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 prepared so things don't happen twice. So it seems like that. It seems that yeah. most, most that are happening are happening for the first time. They're not happening two times. Just like the pandemic, I think in the event that there was another global pandemic in five years from now or 10 years from now, I would, you would hope that they would use all the lessons learned uh, so we would be better prepared, right? Remember, they were, you know, looking for masks, you know, like I'm sure having whatever supplies they need to make sure they protect their residents of their state. The country handled the pandemic very differently. And then in, in the States, each state handled the pandemic very differently. Yep. The thing is, we did have, I mean, the last pandemic was 100 years before, and they were aware that it was coming, that there was a chance, that it was something that they had to pay attention to. And you're right, a lot of places were caught off guard. New York certainly was, right? New York, uh, we didn't have, you know, and you would think, you know, New York was where the terrorist attacks happened. They needed a lot of the same supplies that were needed under uh, right after the terrorist attack masks and things like that we should have had in storage in some warehouse someplace but we didn't respirators and if you remember all those things that we were begging for globally please help us i hope that our leaders in the state of new york are 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 more prepared the next time something happens no matter what it is you know it's when you prepare for one thing you're prepared for that one thing it may may not be that other that thing that actually happens but it prepares you for other things like you know, an example, our broker dealer is based in uh, Minnesota and we, our office is here in the Northeast and we get snow and ice. And a couple of years ago, uh, prior to the pandemic, we said, you know what, 
so nobody, you know, so people don't have to drive to work with the snow and the ice. When the days are bad, you can work from home. So everybody needs to have laptops. So we took the whole building and put everybody with laptops. So when the pandemic happened, everybody was prepared at home with printers and laptops. So we did not skip a beat at all when, the, when there was a shutdown. That kind of stuff put people in leaps and bounds. Like if you were already kind of there, your ability to pivot, as they say, or adapt, gave you a running head start. Uh, I was talking with one uh, tax accountant who said, you know, he had all of his paper files in his basement, the basement flooded. So they had all the files had to go through the company that fixed it all. And when they fixed it all, they actually digitized all these files that had been ruined mm-hmm. and gave him the digital digital. So when they went, when the pandemic happened and they had to go digital, it was already done. So yeah. one disaster prepared him for the next one, which is exactly what you're talking about here. For sure. That's you're uh, talking about it on a much bigger scale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you're working with businesses and individuals with wealth, there's ways that they can prepare for one disaster from the lessons that you've learned by being in the industry so long. I wrote a book that kind of went goes over a lot of those different things and looks at the six areas of financial planning, the importance of having a cash reserve, uh, the importance of planning for the the concept of, of uncertainty, right? The only thing that's certain is that there were things will be uncertain at some point. There are a lot of things that people can do financially to prepare themselves for whatever. Um, and a lot of people under the p- pandemic, a lot of people were caught off guard, right? Yeah. If they were a paycheck in it, they didn't have a cash reserve, they got themselves into trouble. Or if they didn't have credit lines set up, if they were a business owner or they had lousy payroll records uh, when people were applying for the paycheck protection plan here in the state. Uh, you know, if you were not prepared for all of these, if you weren't prepared in these areas, it was very hard for you the first, I would say, six to eight months following the the, uh, the impacts of the pandemic. So financial planning and doing it is is really important for not only business owners, but for everybody. There's a $10 million. It's important. Because what you're planning for, your plan is a plan. You know where you're at, you know where you want to be, and you've got this plan to get there. But you've also got plans in place in case something goes awry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And people who hire people like yourself and take the time to sit down with you and go over things and come up with one and then stick to that plan. How hard is it for people to sometimes stick to that financial plan that you that they've got and they've agreed to? I would say that. Uh, most people do. Most people, they do stick to it. Uh, but in times of uncertainty in their life, they come off of it. Medical condition, family event, loss of a job. There could be a lot of markets drop. And our job as advisors to keep them on that path, to not let them come off their, their plan. And if they've done really good planning, no matter what comes their way, they can actually get through it. It's the people that don't have a plan. And when a situation, a storm hits, they find they're the ones who really, you know, they get themselves into trouble, bailed out, whether it's bailed out through the government or bailed out through friends and family. Without a plan, you can rest assured that we're likely to have to get bailed out by somebody. And nobody likes to get bailed out. I don't care who you are. Yeah. And no one wants to have to bail their kids out. Which is more more common today. You've got 
uh, you've got these more and more people that have higher levels of intelligence, mm-hmm. lower levels of emotional intelligence, more of a backstop attitude where, you know, parents are going to bail me out. So it doesn't really matter. And they're probably right because they're over the parenting that we've seen over the past 15 to 20 years. So I mean, my kids are very fortunate because they know that their parents are unable to be that backstop um, at periods of time in their life. We haven't been able to be that uh, due to divorce and a few other things. People are finding themselves in those positions where after divorce Absolutely. and where their financial ability is no longer there. And, or like in my case where, you know, I get divorced, you know, my ex still living in the house for two, three years. I can't access it or then I lose my job. And now it's even worse because I don't have the income at all. And I have to pay for this. And, and then there's the, the lack of child support that's coming. Like we find ourselves in these things that have nothing to do with global, what's going on in the global world and everything to do with what's going on in our own lives. When there's divorce, that, that is probably the most disruptive of all the financial things that I could that I could think of is when there is a when there's a divorce for both both parties. It is highly disruptive financially, and neither party comes out better better financially as a result of it. So you you'd hope you know, you know relationship wise that, that you eventually do, but but financially it, it's it's rough. And that plan that they had together is all of a sudden off the rails. In your opinion or experience, how how many years does divorce set you back? Um, I just could share with you a little bit about experience that I've seen with the clients that we serve. And I would say at a minimum, at a minimum, at a minimum five years. But what I see very typically in common, it's a seven to 10 year turnaround. In some cases, maybe even, you know, yeah, I would, you know, some cases at the most 15 years, but it is um, highly disruptive financially. It sets you back, you know, with good financial planning, you probably could cut that time frame down from seven years, which might be like on average and typical, to three to four. But you gotta gotta be doing financial planning. And um, you know, I mean, again, you know, when you think about it, at the end of the day, it's only dollars and cents. You know, dollars and cents can be fixed to some degree over time, right? They can be fixed. When you when you look at the situation in the Ukraine, you know, that's that you're talking lives there, right? you know, different, that's a, that's a different type of a situation than having a, you know, blow up financial situation versus a debate, whether you have people are debating whether they'll be alive the next day. The, the dollars and cents become easy when you look at easy, but to say it's, it's easier than dealing with life or death type situations. So North Americans, North Americans don't really appreciate the fact that our problems really are first world problems. Yeah. You know, through through social media and the media, I think that people are maybe recognizing it a little bit more and they're they're being thankful when they, you know, maybe they'll walk over to a service person and say thank you. When I think people are connecting the dots with, okay, whether it's police or military people, like these people are protecting us and thank God they're doing what they're doing because I'm, you know, you and I are on this Zoom session today. I'm not necessarily worried about a missile coming in my window. I doubt you are either. You know, everybody has different perspectives. One of the things you had said before, which I thought was really a really good thing for your kids, is when you said my kids knew at times there was no financial backstop. And I actually believe that is an advantage because when you view, when you think that there's a backstop behind you, you you may, 
you know, choose to do or not do certain things that you probably should do. And, um, and I think that people that realize there's no backstop and then at the end of the day, if it's going to be, it's up to them. I think that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're able to withstand more trouble in life than people that have to hit the backstop. And I think about that often with my kids and, um, and I, you know, having difficulty in life is actually a good thing for people. I, I do think, you know, I do think it is. You know, my kids had their fair share after, after the family broke apart. My son's been working full time since he was 14. There you go. Yeah. You know, my daughter, since she was 15, 16, both are extremely self-reliant. They know what they want. So they figure out how to get it without coming. That is a, that's a sort of amazing attribute. Um, and that's one that, uh, uh, you know, they, I think you can't teach that in school, I guess, but that's a great, that's a great attribute for both of your kids that they want something out there and do it themselves. It's good. They're just highly independent, which is one of those values that is inter- intergenerational in my family, as well as hard work. Uh, my daughter had once mentioned, uh, she went to my fam- my parents' cabin because she was going to go work at the local resort down, down the beach from them. And on her first day, my mother said to her, you know, your appeal. So you have to work hard. <laughs> so, great. That's great. You know, work was always very important. They, but my kids also saw me work because what I did, I mean, for a lot of their life, I was home, but I was working still. I was remote working before it was COVID, before it was cool, before it was, a, you know, right. the thing to do. I was doing remote work. They saw me, which was great. Like as a single mom, I would be like, okay, I got to drive you here. I got to drive you there. But that five, that half an hour that it took me to drive them somewhere, I was making up for in the evening by working an hour. So they saw me work. <laughs> a lot of times they go, mom, when's dinner? I'm like, oh, what time is it? Nine o'clock. Uh, it's your bedtime. So whatever you grab before you get to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to fight with them to do, to do their, their chores. So they basically got to do what they wanted to do chores wise. So my daughter was doing the grocery shopping because the grocery store is at the end of the block. Very cool. So I give her my car, my bank card and I say, I can't go get the groceries. Love that. And she come back and she's like, mom, they think there's something wrong at home. Uh, well, listen, that is, uh, how old, how old was she when she was doing that? Oh. oh, I mean, very cool. You know, I think it's to learn how to do that at 12. Um, now she can go into a grocery store. I'm sure she could kind of, you well, know. Yeah. She's been on her own for a while. Like they've both been on their own since they were like right away. As soon as they could get be legally be out on their own, they were. It's hard. It must have been hard for you to. to see. God, it was this, it was impossible. Let me tell you, it was the worst thing that ever happened to me because it was the last thing I had, and I just was glomming onto it so hard, and it's suffocating my daughter basically. So she was. So when she got to when she could go, she she took the opportunity, and I was left no, and I just lost my second job. You know, it was just really a hard time for me all around, but hard. That is, uh, it's like, the, like the stock market, right? Good days, bad days. As long as there's or good days and bad days, we get through life, right? That's, that's, uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's one thing that I did note. We have all these support systems. I'm not sure about in the States, but in Canada, we have all these support systems for new moms, all these classes, you know, all this help to help you adjust to becoming a mom mm-hmm. we have nothing for the for when your kids leave to help you adjust with the empty nest to help you adjust with the fact that you are no longer 
needed every day. Wow. I've never heard of something like that. That's a great idea. You should, you should start it. <laughs> yeah, it would be, uh, it definitely is a need because a lot more a- parents out there whose kids get up and leave and you're left on your own. It's basically abandonment. Like instead of the kids feeling abandoned, the parent feels abandoned. I, I'm not looking forward to that. I got it. My daughter's 15. So I, you know, another two years or so. It's hard. It's hard when they, you know, it's, it's hard every time that they pull away from you. If you think about the different times that they've grown up and they don't need one to hold your hand on the way to school anymore, or they don't want you dropping them off at school anymore. You know? Right. But I think it's, I think it's, those are, you know, those are good things. I mean, it sounds like you've, you've raised independent people where oh, yeah. you know, it happened to you. They're going to be okay. Right. You know, that's, 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 I think that's, that's so, that's so important to, to, to raise people that can take care of themselves is super important. And they can, and they take care of each other. And that's my, my greatest blessing is they rarely ever fought growing up. So they were the best friends. They were each other's backstop, I guess. Three years age difference. Three years age difference. Son is older than daughter. Uh, but when my daughter was born, I was very clear with my son that he was responsible for her. And when she got to an age where I could see that she was taking advantage of that, I sat her down and I said, you're responsible for your brother. And together they, I made them responsible for each other. And, you know, my friends were horrified that I would put that kind of responsibility on them, make them responsible for someone else's happiness. And whenever they started, would start fighting, like whenever I could see them like getting kind of cranky with each other. Okay, you guys can fight, but first you got to say I love you and hugs. Then you can fight till the till the dogs come home. And when they were young enough, they would stop. They would give each other a hug and say I love you, and then that would be it. And off they would go and play. They got to a certain age where it was like, Mom, no. But then it was the two of them against me. So it gave them once again the fight's not there because they're both in partnership against what I'm wanting them to do. I like it. So yeah, so we could go on trips for 15 hours like i'm not kidding like we would get up in the morning put them in the car and drive from calgary to somewhere in wyoming or somewhere for 15 hours and they would not fight they would not say mom he touched me mom this mom that nope they were laughing reading to each other telling each other jokes so close today which I'm is awesome very very lucky in fact my daughter it was funny she got her first real i mean serious boyfriend after she had graduated high school and he wasn't scared to meet the to meet my ex. I don't think they, I actually, I don't even think he has met my ex really officially yet, but he was scared to meet the brother because huh. he knows that my daughter doesn't care if her dad likes him or not, but she does care if her brother does. That's awesome. That's, that's great. I hope my kids, my kids sound similar as far as their relationship. And I've made them promise when they were like, like three and five or something. And I'm like, listen, you, you, no matter what happens, you, you, I told my, my daughter's older. I'm like, you gotta, gotta promise me. You're always going to love your brother. That that's, that's the deal. And they do, they, they, you know, they'll fight a little bit, but nothing major. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Like a little bit of Nick, a little bit of niddling at each other, but nothing like all in out. Don't get along. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, you know, I think a lot of it though, is that when the kids know that each other, how they feel about each other, and it's not a competition for mom or dad's attention. Yep. Then you have the ability to have that type of relationship with your sibling. So it's 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 really interesting. 
when you sit down with families and they're looking at their future, how many families nowadays are wanting to leave something for their kids? So I would they say, all like my parents going, oh, it's all going to be gone by the time I'm done. <laughs> you know, a lot of people say that, um, oh, it's going to be all gone by the time I'm done. I think most people, they would like to leave, um, if not everything or something behind you would think that one thing I am surprised about is that more people are not um, adding into the conversation. What is it they can do for the world, right? So if somebody has, say, I don't know, you know, $5 million, $10 million or something like that, in I don't hear a lot in the conversation. It's their money. They could do whatever they want. It's not for me to tell them what, how to, whether they should give their money away or not. You would think that more people would say, um, you know, I'm going to give away 1 million, I'll pass on 9 million or, you know, or the idea of, of giving dollars away to help others and organizations and stuff is not as popular as, as you would think it might be with people with, with larger financial resources. And so I try to talk about it with the clients we serve to educate them and, uh, and to continue to work on it because I really do believe that, they would really get more enjoyment out of life if they did, if they gave away more and they did that more, they'd be able to create more joy in their life. It's just some people think that they can't or they're nervous to, or they think their kids may need it or whatever. That's something- interesting. Cause what you're talking, yeah. Cause what you're talking about is it's all fear-based. You fear-based. Know, when I look at my family, it, my mom's a planner, huge planner as every minute of every day planned out. So she knows exactly how much. In theory, she will need to get to a certain age, but it's fear-based. It's completely like, if I run out, if I run out, it's that yeah. scarcity mindset. There's, there's never enough. Even people that have a hundred million dollars have that mindset too. You know, somebody might be, let's say 70 years old, have a hundred million dollars. and there's no way they could possibly spend all that money before they die. But yet they have more time to actually experience helping people that may not be able to help themselves. So I'm going to get better at it. Not that I'm trying to convince anybody to do anything that they don't want to do, but educating people more about the the investment in doing that and how it, the investment, how it makes you feel. Because it, it the people that do it, you see the reward uh, come, come back to them for sure. That's it's been kind of my experience. Well, it's also that legacy piece. Yeah. It's that legacy piece. And people that have that kind of money, they want to leave some sort of legacy. You would think so. You would think that they would be more, not just again, people that have large financial resources, but everybody. Like when the situation in Ukraine broke out, there was a period where I went on to, they showed how much money was donated from the United States to the people of the Ukraine. And I looked at it and it was like $65 million. And I'm like, oh, that's not really a lot. I'm like 20 cents per household, 20 cents per, per person. If every person in the United States and Canada gave a dollar, that would be three hundred and seventy million, three hundred seventy million dollars. If everyone gave a dollar, text this number to your on your iProduct or something, and there's your dollar. I think that we all, you know, everybody can do can do better with helping out their fellow person. Just my opinion, but uh, some you know people might disagree with me. Think that that most you know people want that you can see that in social media that they celebrate these stories of people helping out the homeless or helping out doing something interesting for someone helping them across the street or whatever like you see all these social media posts 
And people are like, wow, as if that's such a huge thing. Because we need more of that in the world because it's, it's not there. Everybody is so concerned with their own lives and their own needs and not looking to give of time, resources. You know, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people about being generous with our knowledge, being generous with our time, you know, giving those 30 minute free consultations. That's, that's not generosity because that's part of your business plan. Generosity yeah. is taking a moment to give something without any, any reason for, for getting it back. That's the, uh, that's the best, that's the best form of giving. One of the things we're doing with my office team is we're going to be packing a thousand care packages and sending a thousand packages to the service people of the Ukraine. Oh, any of the people, they don't know me. We're probably never going to cross paths in life ever. Right. Mm -hmm. But at least they'll know that there, you know, there'll be a thousand people that end up by sharing whatever's in their gift box, probably with 10 people. So there'll be 10,000 people know that there's a group in the States someplace that's, that's thinking about them. You know, it'll almost be worth, uh, might also be more affordable. So you take that money, one of you go over there, buy everything, put it all together and give it. You know, we thought about that. The shipping and costs alone today are insane. Yeah. Yeah. It's the shipping costs are going to be, we invest about $30,000 into this project. 10 of it's going to go towards shipping costs. Yeah. I thought about that. Just send the money. But if you saw these packages, kids do the cards. They're very, they come from the heart and they have. No, I, wasn't, really I wasn't meaning just send the money. I was meaning more like a small group of you go over like with the cards or whatever personal things that you've created. Yeah. Yeah. Go there. yeah. And then purchase the rest of it, put it together and hand it over there and then hand it over to the Red Cross at that point in that area. You'd probably be cheaper than $10,000. Absolutely. Um, we're pretty much set with the project. Well, no, no, I, it's a great project. My, my point is that shipping is absolutely insane right now and it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's $2.30 per pound and you know it's going to be... Well, shipping but, costs on general for businesses, just to get product from China to Canada or from Africa to Vancouver, the price has gone up significantly. And that was before COVID even happened. You know, you would think that based upon that, you just see people, you know, when you look at North America, between the United States, Mexico and Canada as a as a continent here, you know, working, figure out, OK, what what should we be producing here? What should we not be producing? What are we at risk of not producing? Right. When you, when you thought about all the medical supplies that are being produced other places and that during COVID, it's like, wow, this can't even get here. But Rocco, I want to thank you very much for coming out today. I know that we're a little bit over, but it's been wonderful talking to you. And you have such a big heart. As well, conversation today. Yeah. So um, can I get the name of your book that we were supposed to be talking about? It's, uh, it's called The Three Chords Approach to Life and Wealth Management for Business Owners. Um, book published by Forbes. The website is my name, RoccoACarrero.com. If somebody wants to download a chapter or two, they're able to do that as well. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. And I encourage all my listeners to go and check it out because you can find somebody who understands financial management, but with such a giving spirit that definitely provides more balance. It's about more than just the numbers in that case. And when you can have a plan around that, 
you can leave a pretty good legacy. For sure. So thank you very much. Listener, I hope that you enjoyed today's episode and maybe got a few tips and tricks about living, saving, and giving. If you know someone who would enjoy this episode, please send them the link and share it on social media. Don't forget to tag me at Market Appeal on Facebook, at Shannon Peel on LinkedIn, and at Shannon Peel One on Twitter. Peel out.